The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. Wednesday, September 12, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said in a press conference that his government is aware of the two men who UK police accused of poisoning the former Soviet spy Sergei Skripal. And he says that these two men are, quote, private citizens, not Russian agents. Again, a quote from Putin. I call on them to appear before the media. Why would private citizen murderers appear before the media? Shouldn't you call on them to appear before some sort of tribunal? This is lined with Fancy Bear and all those hackers, too. Private citizens. They're just private citizens. Here's another quote from that press conference. There is nothing special here. Nothing criminal, I assure you. We will see in the near future. Okay, But they did attempt to kill a former enemy of the state. It seems like an off kind of undertaking while you're on holiday in England and jump in a plane right back to Russia to pursue your private citizenry. I mean, a lot of tourists go to Buckingham Palace, try to get a rise out of one of those guards, right? Some go to Salisbury, try to poison people. Either way, these are things that private citizens like to do when visiting the U.K., Also, these two private citizens, not rogue actors, you could have not disagreed with the fact that they have no formal affiliation with one of your intelligence agencies or the military, right? So you could have emphasized their rogue actors, their enemies of the state, that sort of thing. No, they're private citizens. Anyway, these private dudes, these blokes on a walkabout, they did kill another private citizen, a citizen of the United Kingdom, Dawn Sturgis. So this was the, the innocent woman whose um, partner found what he thought was perfume, but it was this nerve agent, and he sprayed it on her, and now she's dead. I, I would think that when they appear before the media, that would be the sort of thing on the media's agenda to talk to these private citizens. What's going on? Why would private citizens take it upon themselves to kill an enemy of Putin? Or maybe just a perceived enemy. Maybe they were taking an educated guess. Was this like a Mark David Chapman situation? Was Putin the Jodie Foster in this equation? I'm sure Putin's reacting like, look, can I help it if I'm so compelling? People kill my enemies to make me like them. This is called charisma. You've seen the shirtless horsey pictures, yes? The New York Times has some great reporting on these two private citizens. It turns out that there was a prisoner exchange, and that's why Sergei Skripal was in the UK, and Medvedev, the uh, Putin placekeeper, he agreed to this. And when you have two countries essentially forming an agreement, it's kind of bad form to go back and try to kill the agents who are part of that agreement, don't you think? Right? Would call into question your honesty the next time we do a prisoner swap. And the key to all this, if you want to say, look, Putin's just a badass and a bad man and he'll always get his man, the key is that no one finds out. That is very important. International super agents do not get caught. Putin is a thug, but is he also a crafty assassin? Well, we all know that his hands are dirty, but the thing is, we can see the dirt. It's not that impressive. And let's remember this one final fact. Our president, Donald Trump, offered to meet with Vladimir Putin, and Vladimir Putin turned him down. On the show today, I spiel about my reaction 
to the prognostication about the midterms. But first, Anangir Dardis, he is a little covered public intellectual. Well, you may have heard him on this other Slate podcast, The Good Fight. He was on a a two-part episode there. Maybe you heard him on the Slate podcast hosted by a guy named Isaac called I Have to Ask. That's Isaac Chotner's podcast. Or you may have heard him on this other Slate podcast hosted by a guy named Isaac called Lend Me Your Ears. That's Isaac Butler's Shakespeare podcast. So you know one thing. If there's a Slate podcast, Anin Girdardes has been on it. So as part of the unprecedented Golden Slam, he is here now on the gist talking about, well, you know, the things that you've heard him talk about 45 times before. No, really, this is an interesting and unique interview with a gentleman who's apparently slate catnip. I have often said, you know, we in America should count our blessings. We have such great plutocrats. They give back so much. Can you imagine if our billionaires weren't as munificent as they are? And it sounds like I'm being sarcastic, but you know, we've got some okay billionaires compared to billionaires in other countries, billionaires of America's past. We've got some bad billionaires too, but Good billionaires are better than bad billionaires, or are they? Maybe I'm looking at it all wrong. In a new book by Anand Girdadas, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, he takes aim at rich people for, uh, you know, taking a little more than giving. Hello, Anand. How are you? Great to be on the podcast with you. Okay. So here's what I want to stipulate. Obviously, Rich people use charity to burnish their self-image, to feel good about themselves, to maybe some buy off some bad publicity. And you're not exactly or only talking about charity. But would there be a way for you to say, you know what, that's a charitable endeavor by a billionaire, and yeah, it's really working, and yeah, it's really helping society uh, significantly? Sure. So I, I think before we kind of identify how it can work. We have to talk about what the pitfalls are. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of winners take all is that this kind of elite do-gooding does several things, some of which you mentioned. It burnishes the winner's reputation, which is important because when people think you know, quickly about what's Goldman Sachs or what's you know, the Walton family, it occupies a, that imaginative space. The, the, the do-gooding can kind of conquer that imaginative space mm-hmm. instead of saying, you know, we need to really like regulate that company more. That's one of the reasons they do it. But that's one of the reasons the Rockefellers and Carnegie Correct. did it. Um, it also, you know, serves to, you know, wipe clean very explicit sins that people may have committed. But there are also other problems that are less obvious, one of which is the democratic problem. Even if you are a relatively good actor, even if you're not about putting your name on plaques, even if the giving you do makes a real difference in people's lives, even if you're not, you know, trying to cover up some sort of horrible past, this kind of billionaire giving gives people, rich people, power over public life that is just millions of times removed from one person, one vote. Yes. This kind of sphere of do-gooding has almost created a fourth branch of government in which none of us have a vote and the plutocrats have all the votes. 
And it's not clear to me why we bother and have bothered to fight so hard for one person, one vote in our public life. If we are, you know, shunting more and more public problems, our public schools, our environment, our, you know, the, the empowerment of women, yeah. poverty, yeah. if we're shunting them into the hands of that fourth branch of government where we have no votes. Right. So in other words, we should do something public policy-wise about women in the workplace. Instead, we are told to lean in about it. We should fund our schools at a fair level. Instead, Mark Zuckerberg gives a big check to Oprah and Cory Booker. All these things should have a public policy dynamic, but we're sort of outsourcing it to the billionaires. However, in years past, our billionaires were doing the opposite of those good things. And some, like the Koch brothers, aren't even involved in the right side of the issues. So are you comparing it to an ideal or to the way it actually was or other uh, versions of billionaire giving that are on the wrong side of issues in society today? I think that it's very parallel to what the Kochs did. The Kochs, one of the stories about the Kochs that was revealed so powerfully by Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, um, which is a landmark investigation of some of these same types of practices that I write about, but on the right, is that the Koch brothers actually didn't achieve what they achieved by giving directly to politics. That was like at the end of the chain. They actually invested philanthropically over decades to build an ecosystem on the right, and giving the candidates yeah. and funding races was like very far late down the road. They funded institutes. They groomed students. They, you know, if, if there were thinkers who were promoting ideas that were favorable to them, they made sure those thinkers never starved. They did all kinds of things, mainly through charity, um, to shore up power. So that is actually a prime example. Even setting aside the issue of substance, the fact that I personally disagree with the ideology behind, you know, virtually everything they did. But even on an issue where I agree with them, like you know, reducing mass incarceration, I still have a problem with the anti-democratic nature of the fact that they get all these votes to do this. And they, what they essentially do is use philanthropy to kind of mold public opinion, whereas government is supposed to reflect public opinion. But but wait, does it does it rebut your thesis or support it? Because many progressives, and I think you're even saying here that the Kochs have been effective. They have used their philanthropy to reshape society. But it seems your critique in the book is that the uh, forces on the other side have not been able to do that. Society has not been suitably reshaped by anything that Tom Steyer has given or that Soros has given. I think that, I think in, in, in it, frankly, the people on the right have been a lot more effective. Yeah, so is, that's the problem. Is the problem of the progressive no. billionaires aren't as effective as the I, but I think, but, ones? But I think both problems are problems. Okay. I, I think it is a problem to do the wrong thing. Yeah. But I think it's a problem even if you are doing the right thing. Even if Mark Zuckerberg has the right idea for our schools, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg should run our schools. A lot of these guys create programs that, that go around government but and, and use the atrophy of government as the excuse for doing so, but in a way contribute to the further atrophying of government by, you know, not actually working to build its capacity. Yeah. On the other hand, there are people who crowd government in. A great example is Head Start. The Rockefellers, actually, and others funded research at the University of Iowa Child Welfare Station in the middle of the 20th century. Research trying to prove that if you took poor kids and improved the environment around them, gave them a better home environment, um, you'd change their life chances. Now, that sounds like an obvious idea now, but people didn't believe that back mm -hmm. then. People believed the kids' kind of birth background 
dominated. Now, they proved that outside of government. They proved it through this kind of long, weird, experimental research that maybe the government would never have funded, right? But once they had proved it, once they had the proof of concept, they didn't do what many people would do today, which is create some private island program where there's no accountability, no transparency, and they just... I mean, they, they didn't do what I, I imagine a Mark Zuckerberg would do. Um, instead, they mainstreamed it into government through the program that became Head Start. And you know how many people were in the first class of Head Start? Half a million people, okay? So all these business people talk about scale. You know what has really good scale? The fucking government. Yeah, which represents all of us. That's 100% scale. It's ultimate, the ultimate scale. Yeah. You also take aim at the sort of uh, altruist circuit that includes the Aspen Ideas Festival and anything sponsored by The Atlantic and TED Talks. Are they not as good as they could be? Are they more harm than good? I'm sure there's some elements of them that are great and some that are horrible. But, you know, if all these things went away, would it be better off for society? I don't know. I mean, I I think what I'm trying to describe is fundamentally capture. You know, you take something like TED. It's an incredibly powerful platform. I will tell you from my experience, having done two TED Talks, you know, frankly, my talk there reached people that I would never be able to reach with a book in every part of this world and was translated into languages like, and that's great. That's a heroic thing to have achieved. So the question is just how do you use a platform like that? What ideas are you putting there? What ideas are you not putting there? Here's what I'd say. I regard market world, which is what I kind of call this complex of people and systems and companies and, and conferences. It's this full integrated system. And so the TEDs and Davoses and other kind of ideas forms where they fit into that system is a lot of these winners need intellectual guidance and justification for their approach to making the world better. In other words, they are operating business people or they are simply out of touch with the communities that they would serve. And they need people to kind of validate and enable their theories of, you know, the idea that essentially they can solve problems instead of, instead of doing so democratically. And they have cultivated and nourished, wittingly or unwittingly, a circle of thinkers who are pleasing yeah. to those kinds of audiences. Yeah, it's a feedback loop. So if you're like a feminist scholar, right, and you give two talks... And one talk is about patriarchy, right? And the other talk is about, you know, if women, like, have a buddy system at work to cope with sexism, it'll increase their odds of rising up the corporate ladder. Well, here's what's going to happen. You gave both talks. You believe maybe both things, right? Right. But your patriarchy talk's not going to get you invited back. You, it, you may get you invited back to, like, Wesleyan. Right. But it's not going to get you invited back maybe far and wide on this circle. It's not going to get you paid. It's not going to become a project that someone backs. It's not going to get you an advisory gig, blah, 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 blah. No one's going to make a musical out of it, whatever. The other talk you give, which you believed in, you know, as much as as the first one, um, is going to be embraced. It's going to be embraced by all these kind of entrepreneurial people who are good at taking something like that and running with it. They're going to invite you to speak. They're going to pay you to speak. They're going to create projects around it. They're going to put it on curriculums. Someone's going to make an artwork with it. You're going to be invited to actually ramify that idea out into the world. And that is very tempting for people who create ideas for a living. And it's a mix of cynicism and actually idealism that often gets them to chase that opportunity. And it's not that 
the thing that they're chasing is untrue. It's just that the other thing they also thought was true doesn't have that kind of support. Right. And so, so those ideas kind of wilt on the vine. So an analogy I'd think of is um, an actor, I don't know, James Franco, before he had this baggage attached to him, had this like avant-garde side that he knew wasn't too marketable, but then he could also appear in funny Judd Apatow movies and make millions of dollars. And they're both legitimate sides of him, and he doesn't seem like he's selling out, but he'll do the Apatow movies, and maybe start doing more of the Apatow movies. There's a lot of artists like that. And I think specifically you're talking, when you use the sexism example, about Amy Cuddy, who's in your book, and she talked a lot about sexism and things that maybe wouldn't uh, cause comfort to the powerful people, and then she did a power pose talk, and that's the thing that she became known for, and that's the one that blew up. Correct. And she, you know, unlike a lot of these people, she's not... um you know, a charlatan. Like, she has a long record of very serious papers. As you say, you know, leveling criticisms of patriarchy and racism and other structural oppressions that is searing if you read the papers. Yeah. You know, what happened to her was one little thing she did out of a very large suite of ideas became very acceptable to this world. Yeah, and it also might have been the one that had the least ballast behind it. Correct. Yeah. And by the way, it's not all cynical. It's not only about getting paid. It's nice if you're a thinker to, like, have people act on your ideas. I think that if your book has an effect, it will be very – it's a very tall order to think that many billionaires who are getting positive feedback for their munificence will really change. And maybe the conferences themselves – and this entire ecosystem of rewarding people for advocating for charity that doesn't really change the world, though they say it does. Maybe that can't change. But what I think can change is the critical thinker's uh, relationship with these conferences and TED Talks and so forth. I mean, personally, my criticism of TED Talks is that they make everything tied up into a neat bow, and they're apart from a government solution, right? It's always about, and here's the one simple thing that we did with whatever, giving iodine, and this solved more problems than a government ever could. So I have a big critique of that. And if we all start thinking about these, what is replaced public intellectuals, the mechanisms, the TED Talks, the thought leaders that have replaced public intellectuals, I think maybe there'll be a movement to try to go back and regain what public intellectuals were, which are they don't have to present everything with all the edges sanded down, you know, and there could be a lot more debate. And I think that that would be a better place for society. I understand that the TED Talks, they allow many more people than the Academy or whoever the gatekeepers uh, kept out of the public discourse. So it's good that we have all these people. But now that they're in there, let's institute a rigor as opposed to the kind of uh, sanded off corners of a TED Talk. Correct. I, I, I really do believe that we are living at an inflection point between what has been for 30 or 40 years an age of market fundamentalism and as a complement to it, an age of thousands of generous little initiatives is coming to an end. And I think it's coming to an end because Donald Trump is the perfect culmination of an era of fake change. And what comes next is, is what happened 100 years ago, which is the age of reform an age of reform. It's not such a crazy thing. It's We have these periods and these cycles in American life where there's kind of an excess of private 
striving, and that creates some very good things, and it also creates problems that exceed our institutional capacity to deal with it. And then we kind of got to pivot, and we enter an age of reform where we kind of build our systems. We build our FDAs, and we regulate the workday, and we stop children from working in factories, and we build roads. And, you know, we do both of these things at every moment in a certain sense, but there, but there are these emphases of ages. And I, I think we're heading towards an age of reform. And I think you're absolutely right that part of what that's going to require is for those of us who think and speak and write and those of us who have the platforms to actually shape what the ideas of the age are to not be so afraid, not be afraid of offending those people in the audience. You know, when I gave my TED Talk, Bill Gates was literally in the front row. You know, that's intimidating. But we all have to, I think, understand that what this moment and inflection point towards the age of reform requires is a new set of ideas, a new set of thinking that is not concerned with not offending billionaires um, and is actually centered in what it will take to bring our common life and common institutions up to the standards of the 21st century. Winners take all the elite charade of changing the world by Anand Girdadas. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the GIST's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gap Fest, Trump Cast, Amicus, and El Gap Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party. And you'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And now the spiel. I've been laying off here on the show and a little bit of my life, deep dives into electoral predictive content. But today I was drawn, I was drawn to it, and I was drawn by none other than Mr. Magnetism himself, Mitch McConnell, the scintillating, incisive seer of political prognostication, told Republicans that the following states, which we thought might be trending Republican in the Senate elections, are total toss-ups. Here we go. Arizona, Nevada, Tennessee, Montana, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, West Virginia, and Florida. They're dead even, he said. Then he said this. And every one of them, um, like a knife fight in an alley. I mean, just a brawl in every one of those uh, places. I hope when the smoke clears that we'll still have a majority in the Senate. So it's a knife fight, but it's also a brawl. I guess a brawl could include knives, but once knives are out, why go back, I say, one level down to brawl? So it's a knife fight. I'm thinking of fists here. But then there's smoke clearing, so apparently some sort of explosive was a play. Let's just say Mitch McConnell can seem benign, but that man has some menace about him. Now, if you put any stock in the McConnell 18 cast, I would caution you what he's trying to do is get people worried for a map that looks pretty good for the Republicans in the Senate. Not so much in the House. I think we all know this, that it is likely that the Democrats will retake the House. How likely? Well, let's remember 2016. You remember 2016. The prognosticators got that one wrong. We were misled. Only the thing is, we weren't misled. Nate Silver and 538 were among 
the prognosticators, the forecasters who told us that Hillary should win and she didn't win. But that's a kind of limited way to look at the art of forecasting. I mean, look at the polls. The polls were great. Not every poll in Wisconsin, not every poll in Minnesota. But overall, nationally, the polls predicted Hillary Clinton would win the presidency by three to four points. So that's really close. It's useful information what they say in the polls and what these forecasters are trying to do or get even more useful information. Weigh the good polls, take out some of the bad polls, maybe mix in a little expert prognostication if it turns out some of those experts were right in the past. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is last year when Nate and his cohort comes out and says that Hillary Clinton has a two and three chance of winning, we all say, well, she's going to win. And then when she doesn't win, we say he was wrong. And that's where he was. Like the weekend before the election, it was Hillary Clinton had a two and three chance of winning, 65%. The last couple days, the 538 forecast ticked up to 71 or 72%. Now from that, can we say Nate Silver was wrong? Or can we say that the one third chance of winning actually came in as one third chances often come in? Now Sam Wang at Princeton, he said, Hillary had a 99% chance of winning. That seems suspicious. But maybe the 1% thing happened. No, no, not really. You can say that there was a 99% chance that Wang was wrong if, in fact, he said there's a 99% chance that Hillary will win. So wait, doesn't it stand to reason that if Nate said that there's a 66% chance that Hillary would win, that there's a one-third chance that Nate was right and a two-third chance that Nate was wrong? Sure. I, I would I would co-sign to that. That's about the correct math. But if an accused criminal has two-third chances of actually being guilty and one-third chance of being innocent, we'd let that guy free. You wouldn't buy a car that was only twice as likely to be reliable as to be a lemon. One-third chance of being right, that is a big chance. And so that's why I think that 538 really does provide a service, and he's been more misinterpreted as opposed to him and 538 being mistaken. That all said, this election cycle, I shall be using their services totally differently. I'm not considering the precise numbers next to their account in setting my expectations. I will perhaps occasionally survey them more passively because I subscribe to a lot of 538 content. I will learn how their chances and other chances change. And I'm not going to be clicking the what chance do the Democrats have of taking the House tab over and over again. So I did, I did do that today. And I noticed that 538 is giving you the precise number. They're a precise, in quotes, number. And one of their, their three different models and the model with the, uh, that looks best for the Democrats, I guess you would say, will tell you that the Republicans only have a 17.9% chance of retaining control. But in bigger font, uh, 538 is telling you it's a one in six chance. So they, they are getting away from the idea of faux precision. So you might say a one in six chance. That's a quite a small chance. Well, I would recommend that they find other things that are one in six to put this in perspective. It's very easy in baseball because there have been thousands, in fact, a million baseball games played. And it turns out if you're the visiting team up two runs in the seventh inning and there's a runner on and one out, so that's a pretty good chance of winning. But the home team comes back to win about one in six times, about, you know, 17 or 18 percent of the time. If you don't understand baseball, let me put it this way. The Republicans only have a one in six chance 
of retaining the house. That seems low. But what if I told you that school-age children have a one in six chance of being obese? You've probably seen a lot of obese kids. If I said we're going to randomly go inside a classroom, pluck out a kid, if that kid's obese, that's the chance that the Republicans retain the House. Maybe you're not saying it's a foregone deal. Now, in another one of the 538 models, they say it's a two in seven chance, meaning around a 28% chance. And that doesn't sound good for the Republicans either. But what if I told you that surveys show that 28% of Americans are inactive, physically inactive? You probably know some inactive Americans. That's not a small percentage of Americans. What if I told you that 28% of respondents to a poll said that they booked a flight last year while they were in the bathroom? So now maybe you're putting some real world numbers on it. I know someone who booked a flight from the bathroom. In fact, it might be this guy. That's the chance that Republicans retain control of the House. The models do have a problem. One problem is faux precision, as I've been talking about. I I think they're better than just polls alone. I like more information compiled by smart people rather than less information. As a tool, I wouldn't take the forecast literally. I would take them seriously. I wouldn't take them gospelly. The problem I have is there's no way to tell if they're right. Retroactively, you can make a model that would have predicted all these races in the past. But since elections, especially presidential elections, only come around every four years and House elections only come around every two years, it's pretty limited data that you're working with. Like I said, with a baseball game, thousands, hundreds of thousands of baseball games, a lot of data. With an election, limited amount of data. I basically have been thinking about the election this way. Is it a toss-up? Is it likely to be a Democratic House? Is it very likely to be a Democratic House? Is it unlikely to be a Democratic House? These days, I think it wavers between likely and very likely, and I am not going to give you extra precise numbers to try to convince you otherwise. That's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who also produce such Slate podcasts as Outward, an LGBT Q issues and inward a podcast of introspection for people with any belly buttons. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast, which means he commissions all the podcasts and makes sure that a guy named Isaac is hosting at least three podcasts at any one time. Look out for our newest offering, The Lido Deck, Tales of Eight Years of Love Boat with Ted Lang. The gist, wait, are you telling me that Anand was not invited? to speak of politics and prose. Something's gone wrong. Something's gone horribly wrong. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Now, I said Girdardas, but the R wasn't pronounced, but that's because I have a New York accent. <laughs> that wasn't the best. <laughs> Girdardas. <laughs> now I'm sounding like Schwarzenegger.